research is about solving those problems and it's about answering the big questions. And it may take some time, but uh, we will get there. Welcome to The Executives, the show where we navigate in the intricate world of executive leadership, exploring strategies, insights, and personal stories of successful professionals, shaping the global business landscape. I'm your host, Majid, and today we have someone from the academia as a guest with us, Seher bin Rashid, a Tunisian researcher in quantum computing, pursuing her PhD at the Barcelona Tech University, Spain. She is also the co-founder of QTunisia, the first quantum computing community in Tunisia, focusing on accessible education and community building. In addition, she is also a former co-founder of a NetTech startup, Alien Dimension, developing immersive education experiences in science. Hello and welcome to the show, Sahar. Hi, Majid. Good to see you. Uh, thank you so much for the introduction. And it's a really great pleasure to connect with you and uh, to be on your podcast today. Awesome. I'm also very excited because it's. I think you're the first uh, guest who's coming from the academia side. I have uh, had multiple requests. We need someone who's either done a PhD or doing a PhD uh, because it's it's not for everyone. I mean, I when I think about it, it's it's not something I I, I consider easy. PhD is a lot of dedication. But it is. Let's <laughs> let's start with. Uh, can you kindly introduce yourself? I had some i mentioned you briefly to to our listeners so but can you introduce more about yourself to our audience sure yes uh so i'm sahar originally from tunisia and now i am barcelona i am based in barcelona and uh, i am a researcher in quantum computing and pursuing my phd in barcelona tech uh, i started my phd around a year ago so i'm just starting my second year and uh, still a few years to go to do to do a good research in, in in phd like you said is not an easy task but it's definitely fun and challenge and um, besides my phd i'm also the co-founder of qtunisia that we started in 2020 and it is the first community of enthusiasts and developers in quantum computing in Tunisia. And our activity was mostly uh, concentrated on organizing workshops and talks in order to educate anyone who's interested to learn about quantum technologies and quantum computing specifically uh, through the workshops uh, that we hosted, but also through the talks uh, where we invited researchers and developers uh, from Tunisia who are contributing to the field. And uh, before my research, uh, I was the co-founder of Alien Dimension, like you mentioned, which is an edtech startup that is based in Tunis. And uh, our solution was to develop immersive experiences in sciences, uh, mainly fundamental sciences, for example, physics, in order to uh, make the, the experience of learning about sciences fun, tangible, and more engaging than the conventional learning methods that we are used to in schools. Uh, so, yes, with uh, a background in physics and an experience in business, uh, I am now starting my career in quantum computing and uh, we will see how this develops. Interesting, interesting. Our topic for discussion today will be quantum frontiers, the journey mm -hmm. from theoretical algorithms to real world applications. Mm -hmm. Because quantum computing, I'm not sure if everyone understands it's not a topic, it's not, I mean, engineers do, you're the researcher, so you do. Even for me, who is an engineer, I had to read a lot to be able to understand what is quantum computing, you know, like, and I still struggle 
you will hear from my questions when i ask you that uh, it's like how do you explain quantum for example to simple people but let's start with what sparked your interest in quantum computing so uh, my interest in quantum computing started with a coincidence let's say <laughs> it's just uh, a chance that i had back when i started my masters and uh, it was the first step into uh, my research career now in quantum computing so i uh, participated in uh, the ibm kiskit hackathon back in uh, 2019 it was in johannesburg south africa and it was the first quantum computing hackathon in uh, in uh, in the continent and uh, back then i had just started my master's in nanophysics and nanotechnology and my professor nominated me to take part in this hackathon so when i went there i had very very basic knowledge about quantum computing from the very few resources that were available and accessible online but when i went there there was a series of lectures and workshops given by uh, ibm researchers who are the experts let's say and they are the researchers who are leading the development of the technology today so it was very eye opening and it was very interesting and uh, i feel very lucky that i had the entry to the field directly from from the experts and uh, for three days there were a lot of conversations around the field about the innovation about the potential and uh, back then it was a very very niche let's say technology and only very few people let's say were let's say interested or working in it so it felt very let's say um it was very interesting right you feel like you are in a position that that uh, would open the doors to, to many interesting uh, fields and, and sciences. And even though my participation in the hackathon was only an introduction to the field, when I, get back to, when I got back to Tunisia, I was very interested and excited to share about this new knowledge that I have with uh, anyone who would like to learn. And that's how I connected with a few communities in my university in order to uh, host a series of workshops, introductory workshops, just to, let's say, um, introduce what quantum computing is and why it would be interesting for a student in technology and engineering to have, let's say, a look or to be interested in such a field. And that was the very first activity that I've done in Tunisia. And after that, which was, the, yeah, the workshops were at the beginning of 2020. And quickly after that, the pandemic started and a lot of conferences and lectures were online. And that's how the knowledge and the, the education and the educational resources were accessible to quantum computing. And that's how I found a platform to learn more about this field. And that's kind of how it developed. And uh, of course, I did my master's in nanophysics and nanotechnology. So I also had a course in quantum information science. So my interest also moved into professional interest. And uh, then later on, I specialized uh, in, in quantum computing. I did also my master thesis in quantum computing. And now I'm doing the PhD. Interesting. That's uh, that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have attended a few conferences where IBM has like, uh, you know, these stalls where they, I don't think it's an exact quantum computer, but it's a representation of a quantum computer, mm -hmm. this golden thing. The quantum chandelier, that, yes. Yeah, that's like, that looks really cool. Even if you're like a mile away, you're like, oh, what is that? I need to see that. And uh, it's, it's very it's, attractive. It's super, yes. Yeah, it is. It yes. is like from far away, you're like, huh, what is that? IBM? golden thing and mm. then when you go there quantum chandelier I, I never called it a quantum chandelier I, I thought it's like a representation of a quantum computer yes it is a representation of what the structure of a quantum computer looks like because the chandelier represents the control uh let's say electronics in order to to have 
the uh, the control on the on the qubits in the chip, which is usually placed at the very end of that chandelier. Mm. And uh, yes, usually you find it in uh, let's say in exhibitions or to draw the attention of people to quantum computing. But uh, yes, I would say it's 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 a good visual of what a quantum computer looks like. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's true because it's. I mean, my next question is about if you were to explain the basics of quantum computing in extremely layman terms, we are talking, explaining it to a, maybe a 10 year old. They know what's an iPad, they know what's a computer, but how will you explain quantum computing? Okay. <laughs> this is a very tricky question because uh, I always try to define what quantum computing is, uh, but uh, of course in, in a simple language, but also try to keep the scientific part of it because it's important. Uh, so I am going to assume that everyone knows what a bit is, right? The unit of information in conventional computation. And this will be, let's say, the foundation that we start from in order to give a good definition of quantum computing. So if we look at the bit, which is the unit of information in classical computing or conventional computing that is making up our computers and our iPads and our iPhones and everything, uh, it can only hold a value at a time. So it's either zero or one. Okay, so it's either true or false. And from there, we can develop, of course, uh, all the logic behind the computations in our machines. So if we look at the quantum computer, we have a different unit of information that is called a quantum bit or a qubit in short. And the qubit is, um, let's say, it holds fundamental uh, characteristics or properties of quantum mechanical systems, let's say an atom, a photon, or uh, an electron. So this qubit, besides being either zero or one, it can also hold intermediate states between zero and one. And scientifically speaking, we say that a qubit can be in a superposition of zero and one. And mathematically speaking, that just to say that a qubit is a linear combination of zero and one. And therefore, we say that theoretically speaking, this results in a larger computation space. So I will give an example to explain this large computational space. If we take four bits, okay? So to do one operation, we can have a binary sequence of four bits, right? And then if we want to do the next operation, then it will generate a new binary sequence. But if we have four qubits, we can represent two to the, to the power of four states at the same time. Okay, so that would be 16 states only using four qubits. Okay, so mm -hmm. this analogy of four bits, the result is one sequence, one binary sequence uh, of four bits. But if we have a qubit, then we can have 16 states, okay, represented in superposition. Now, this is where the uh, computational power and processing speed is coming from, right? And fundamentally speaking, this is a property of quantum mechanical, uh, of quantum mechanical system that we have used in order to do computations, okay? So superposition is a fundamental property that gives this huge capacity uh, of processing information for quantum computers. And it is totally a property of quantum computers that we cannot find it applied in classical computers. There are also other fundamental phenomena which are much more complicated than superposition, but I can name them, which are entanglement, interference, and parallelism, which are also at the origin of the uh, capacity and the processing speed of quantum computers. Of course, 
if we uh, have uh, at any point of this conversation, uh, we would need to explain uh, further the uh, phenomena of entanglement, interference, and parallelism, then I would be happy to do this. But at least we can uh, draw the, the conclusion uh, that uh, superposition is the key power to quantum computers. And uh, the idea mm. comes from that we can do computations uh, over several states at the same time using uh, a limited number of qubits. And of course, this grows exponentially. This means that if we have a very large number of qubits, this means our computational space and the number of values that we can operate on at the same time is very, very large. And eventually, this will allow us to uh, solve complicated problems. And now I'm able to relate to the diagram here, the, to the you know, the, the chandelier that IBM presents. It's uh, the, the flow of information because a single pipe where, like you mentioned, is a qubit. So the more number of pipes, the more number of information you can send. Um, well, yeah. the pipes or let's say the cables uh, that are uh, represented in the chandelier are mainly to uh, do the operations on the elementary mm -hmm. uh, on the elementary qubits. Okay, so for mm -hmm. example, in order to operate on bits, we will be uh, applying a series of uh, of gates. Okay, so logic gates like the NOT gate, the NAND gate, the NOR gate. There are also equivalent gates in quantum computing in order to process the information and eventually solve the algorithms. And mm -hmm. the qubits are, of course, controlled in a very specific way in order to op to, to, to do uh, these, uh, these gates and eventually solve the problem. And why you find this, let's say, bulky structure uh, that is represented in, in the chandelier, it's mainly because for certain qubit technologies, for example, the superconducting technology that IBM is using in order to build its chips, it needs to be operated at very, very low temperatures. We are talking about near zero te temperatures, near zero Kelvin temperatures. Okay, and oh. yes, so it's it's at the order of thirty millikelvin and twenty millikelvin. So it's very very cold environment, and in order to reach such uh, experimental, let's say, uh, conditions, of course, we will need this this structure in order to do the gradual uh, decrease of temperatures until we get the the chip at this uh, low stage uh, at the end. So that's why it's, it's very bulky, yes. Cool, cool. Um, it's a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of information, I know. And uh, yeah, we would need another podcast just to explain what quantum computing is. Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's not a bad idea. That's a good idea. I always like more uh, more episodes. But uh, coming back to the questions, mm. uh, how did your previous research, because you come from nanophysics and you mentioned you also took some courses uh, in, took a course and did your thesis in uh, quantum. How did your previous research experience shape your understanding of quantum computing? So my research career started with quantum computing. So it's the first, let's say, field that I started to uh, work in as, as a researcher. And uh, before that, I did my bachelor in uh, applied physics, besides my business experience. But this combination of knowledge in applied physics and theoretical physics definitely had its, its impact on my understanding of technology and also my contributions. So interestingly, I did my bachelor in applied physics my master's in theoretical physics and my PhD in computer architecture. So how does this all align? I think it aligns perfectly because what I'm doing right now is 
how we can engineer these systems in a way that we can scale the current processors uh, in order to have the, um, let's say, capacity to solve real-world problems. Okay, this is the question that I'm trying to, to solve in my PhD. And of course, I have I have a proposal for that. But um, but uh, just to to answer the question about how my previous experiences is is contributing, I think that looking at the field at, in, of quantum computing, which is currently pure research field, okay, you, it's it's at really at the very frontier of of the uh, of of science and and technology, and looking at the uh, the science both from theoretical and engineering perspective. Let's me let's say gives me the the opportunity to understand the science fundamentally, so I know the physics behind it, but also it gives me the tools and the knowledge in order to design such systems and keep on growing the the, the systems to to its targeted capacity. So I would say that um, my my experiences are converging finally in this in this PhD, and uh, it's definitely contributing from from different perspectives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's interesting because one question I always get from people who are like, hey, should we go to do engineering where we have to study a lot of theory uh, or should we do something more, you know, that's in use in the industry? Because like uh, I remember using, studying calculus 101, 102, uh, differential equation. I don't even remember the name of the subject. So many mathematical subjects, but I switched my career completely towards IT and then product management. Mm completely off like i have not used calculus once in my professional career yeah no 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 never <laughs> so how, how do you tell the people but it i i do say that it was a very good thing because it helped me build my problem solving mm. you know so what do you say about that because i mean engineers not necessarily stay in the field of engineering right they sometimes go in different fields but then they start questioning, okay, why did we study X, Y, Z in, in our in our bachelor's or master's, but we're not using that. Mm. So how do you tell them that, no, it's it's not a bad idea that you study that. It's always a good thing. So I think it really depends on the field that you that you would like to, to work at, right? So for example, if you would like to do a PhD in software engineering, maybe it may not be, let's say, uh, a very good option. Or maybe you not you do not see it as as a good option because software engineering you can just get it from an engineering degree and you can have a very good career starting from that point. And you don't need to know the nitty gritty details about how the processor works in order to be a software engineer and to 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 develop products, right? But if you want to do a career that is very good in quantum computing, it's a different story. It's at this point, quantum computing is very, let's, the theory and industrial development of quantum computing is very intertwined in the sense that everything is so compact and the systems are very, are very primitive, let's say, and very early stage to the point that in order to understand what's really going on, you need to go back to the basics. So calculus is your best friend. Quantum mechanics is your best friend in quantum computing. And you may not need them in engineering in general, but for quantum computing especially, and of course, I'm talking about similar fields, which are very research-oriented and they are very, uh, let's say, primitive and early stage of developments, you need to go back to the fundamentals in order to have a good boost and to know the fundamentals in order to design and develop the manufacturing process uh, in order to have a product at the end. 
So it really depends on the field that you are working on, but also your aspirations, what level of expertise you would like to have. Mm -hmm. If you want to be an engineer, of course, you will have your set of, of, of uh, skills that are required. And uh, of course, whether that would be the training that you have or just the requirements for the jobs that you are applying for. But if you want to have a knowledge of a researcher, usually researchers have a strong fundamental a strong background in fundamentals of the sciences they are uh, working with. So I would say those are the two factors taken into account in order to decide on whether an engineering degree is more interesting to you or research degree or research career is more interesting to you. And of course, usually research means academia. So, but that's not, that, that's not, I would say the case anymore. There's a lot of institutions around the world and a lot of companies, especially large companies, which have a very, have a focus on R&D and R&D is mainly research. So there is, there is a chance to have best of both worlds, engineering and, re and research, uh, if you would like to work for uh, cutting edge technologies, let's say in, in large corporates. Interesting, interesting. So you partly explained what your topic of research is, but let's like, can you explain further what you are currently researching on in quantum uh, computing? So uh, the current state of the, of the technology in quantum computing is that we have prototypes of quantum processors, okay? So we have a quantum computer that functions up to, to an extent. We have quantum processors with a certain number of qubits, which is still limited uh, compared to the capacity that we would like to reach in order to solve real-world problems. So the proposal of our group is... Um, since we need a large number of qubits, in, which is estimated to millions, in order to solve real applications, which are useful in our real life, then um, it would not be possible to host them all in the same processor. And why is that? It's because qubits are very, very fragile. Okay, they are very sensitive to noise. If you put them all together in the same place, they're probably gonna interfere and they'll probably give you very, very bad computations that would fail eventually. So they are not useful. Our proposal is that instead of putting all these qubits in the same processor, why don't we place them in smaller processors? Okay. And we would connect these processors uh, via communication interlinks. Mm -hmm. So this way we can limit the number of qubits in the same processor in a way that we make them protected and we make them function mm -hmm. in the best way we can. And if we assemble this big number of smaller size processors, then eventually we will have the system that hosts millions of qubits, and therefore we will have the system that would solve the problems that we want to. And my PhD is about designing and modeling these communication interlinks in a way that they are reliable and they would transfer the, the, the data in uh, the most reliable way. And in that sense, I am, let's say, uh, researching ways about scaling the current processors. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So that's, that's my topic specifically. How can we make these communication interlinks good enough to transfer the, uh, the data between, between, uh, between processors? And uh, that way, uh, we are aiming for a large system. That's a cool topic. That's very interesting, very technical. So another question, because I've done some research on parallel computing, and it's, I wouldn't say it's exactly the same principle, but it's sort of similar that you have different computers we call nodes mm. and then 
you combine it together and use the power of all of those nodes together. That's the principle. Is it some? Yes, that's, that's the principle. Okay, yes. it's very similar. Yes. Interesting. Interesting, because I built a parallel computer long 2010, 2011 uh, with 10 nodes. Uh, and it was super nice, super interesting. Mm. Like you, you could have, I think I had more than a thousand GB of RAM. Like oh. within within a power of a, a Linux command, you know, so it was mm. super, super cool. But let's diverge from quantum computing for a, a little bit, because uh, otherwise I don't want to forget that you also have started your own startup before. So what inspired you to co-found Alien Dimension? And like now you're not with Alien Dimensions, right? Uh, so what were your key findings? Two questions in one. Buy one, get one free. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, I will answer the first one, which is what inspired me to start Alien Dimension in the first place. Uh, so my main motivation and inspiration was my ambition to contribute to improving, let's say, the learning methods uh, of sciences in, in Tunisia. So uh, usually our, let's say, um, conventional way of learning sciences would be just through school and uh, books and static images. But we wanted to take the science out of books and out of static images into the 3D world. And that's why uh, we used augmented reality technology in order to create these immersive experiences in sciences. And we had already started uh, designing experiences in human anatomy and astronomy. And uh, it was a very cool solution uh, that I was really uh, very, very uh, proud of. And uh, I'm still proud of that professional experience. However, it ended uh, two years after the launch for several reasons, but it's still uh, one of the uh, most impactful, let's say, <laughs> professional experiences that I had. And it was at a very young age, so it taught me a lot. It really taught me a lot, both on personal uh, level, but also on the professional level. So. Professionally speaking, when you are a founder, and you probably can relate, you are engaged in several roles, right? You are you are mm -hmm. managing people, you are designing the product and developing the product, you are talking to people, you are promoting the product, you are raising funds. And as a, as a founder, you are 100% dedicated to each side or to each level of this uh, of this development stage of the of the startup. And it was a very, very interesting journey. I mean, I definitely learned a lot and all of the skills, you either learn them by experience or also by the exposure to the trainings that we had as founders uh, through the facilities and the, and the supporting systems that we had in Tunisia. So even though I'm not an entrepreneur anymore, but definitely those skills are for business development specifically, they are still very useful today. And this has allowed me to be engaged in several initiatives in order to, let's say, um, grow or improve, let's say, or boost the uh, the uh, quantum ecosystem around the world. So I'm also engaged in several, let's say, organizations and initiatives which are focusing on, on uh, developing quantum technologies from a business perspective or from industry perspective. And all of my contributions are uh, thanks to the experience that I had before in business development. So... Um, Yes, I am not an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur right now, but uh, definitely the skills do not fade away, right? And mm -hmm. uh, I will forever be uh, grateful for for that experience. Um, so yes, that's that's mainly my my key takeaways from the experience is that all the skills that I had they are definitely still with me and they are still helping me to to advance in my career. And maybe one day I will be able to converge my research experience 
and my entrepreneurship experience to to eventually also have my own uh, product and solutions developed with quantum technologies. Mm. Now, I, I heard someone say that before, like multiple entrepreneurs have said this to me. Once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, you know, That's they, so will try, they will figure out a way that they can build something, a company again, you know, like make them do a PhD. They will figure out a company around their yes. PhD topic, you know, like, so I, 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 I am sure down the line after you're done with the PhD, there's another startup coming. I can assure you maybe <laughs> during the research, but maybe afterwards, but you can mark my words that this will happen. Like there's no no running away from that. <laughs> we will see. I mean, for me, I'm I'm still very very let's say excited about the dynamics of business. Right? It's it's a very different let's say workflow from research to to industry and especially in entrepreneurship. And uh, yeah, I cannot hide the fact that I love entrepreneurship and the dynamics behind business development. So yes, most probably it's gonna happen at some point. I'm not sure if it's after the PhD or not, but uh, probably yes, it's it's going to happen. It, it will happen. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like the famous quote, and I've heard multiple people said, like, hey, this is our final startup. You know, we will sell it, exit, get a few millions in the account, and then we are retired. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Good question. Because this is what you, what you told me last with the last startup. And then they go, like, yeah, Majid, you are right. No, I, I think we will take a break. Mm. They they go to Tunisia, Morocco, Thailand, Philippines, and so on, and then they come back and hallelujah, another startup. Exactly. <laughs> so once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And one thing I saw, the the I mean, I have built products, you know, like lots of them. But when I started hiring people for my own small little business, right, that feeling, the only feeling that you're supporting the economy, it's for me it's mm. it's like the best like you know you're you you know that you're helping the economy you're giving jobs you're career you're developing talent and so on that's like the best true for me i i don't know why i just love that bit you know that hey i'm creating the jobs you know mm. and then i have a focus where i say my goal is i want to have a very good work-life balance like mm -hmm. Maybe I overworked myself and I'm like, no, no more overworking. Let's keep it realistic. We are all human beings, but. <laughs> yeah, cool. it, 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 it's, I think it's the most challenging part of, of uh, having your own uh, company or, or startup. Yeah, it's, it's the work-life balance that you may, may have to sacrifice for a few years, but hopefully it's fruitful in the end. Mm, that's true. That's true. But now you're in a very special domain of mm. science, quantum quantum computing quantum size i mean we already see that there's a, a, a sort of a uh, i mean i i don't know if we like it, it is a problem that we don't see many women you know like uh pursuing careers in quantum size quantum science and i was super happy that you know in my network there is someone who's uh, who's a lady and who's doing something in in quantum i was like yes i know someone <laughs> because all the people i know from quantum are guys you know mm. like you're you're the only one I know. I'm wrong, by the way. I know there are others as well, but I I don't know. When I went to the IBM stall as well, they were all guys. Like, I see. So how can we like me as using this for example podcast? Uh, because I also want to use it to inspire people mm. that no, oh, this is something anyone can do. So how can we pursue or encourage more women to pursue careers in not only quantum science but generally in technology, science, research? You know. 
Definitely what you are doing is very important. I mean, uh, let's say presenting people who are already doing things and uh, telling their stories and uh, making it accessible is, I would say, the first step to make people more, especially women, uh, interested in, in, in knowing about this field and having the confidence that I can do it too. Okay, so represent representation is very important, I would say. And um, for me, I come from a country that, for example, we do not have this problem. So, yes, Tunisia is, I would say, one of the, uh, statistically speaking, is one of the uh, countries that has the highest number of uh, women graduates in engineering and sciences. For example, I studied physics, theoretical physics, and we were... 10 girls and two guys. So usually that's the reverse of what you what usually find uh, somewhere else. Um, and while there are, of course, special reasons why, why that's happening in Tunisia, but I would say that from where, from where I come from, there was really no distinction between a girl and a boy from our youngest age about pursuing sciences. And I know that this is not the case everywhere, but yes, we need to insist on that again and again, is that science is knowledge and it's accessible. And if we, you put your, let's say, time and efforts into understanding it, it is not as hard as it looks like. Just give it the education it needs. And eventually you will find that there is a lot of beauty and a lot of reasoning and a lot of, let's say, uh, dynamics behind the sciences that that is as much uh, as you find in arts or in humanities or in societal studies and sciences is just one of the pillars of this of these knowledges right so mm. i would say that being let's say consumer of technology in 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 this age uh, should spark enough interest uh, in in people in general but also women should let's say know that this is just knowledge. If you put the same effort and dedication to it, you will find that uh, you are also capable of of, of reaching the the limits in the uh, in the uh, I would say even going beyond the limits in in such fields. Um, mm. So yes, representation is very important. So telling the stories of people who are already doing it is very important. Also mentorship. I mean, everyone I would say is reachable today. If you need any help about anything, even if you need. Mm. Uh, let's say an advice to enter into a field. Everyone is accessible through emails and social media today. So if there is anyone that you would like to connect with, I would say there is a way to do that. So mm. yes, we are in the combination of of interest and accessibility, and also the people who are supporting your your ambitions would definitely be the equation uh, in order to to have a successful. Uh, career in sciences, uh, particularly, but also in in general, in knowledge, uh, in, in general. Interesting. I, I remember reading once. Um, uh, not many people are aware of this, but the first university ever constructed in the world was in Morocco, and it was by a female. Oh, yes, same thing in also. Tunisia also. Tunisia has also one of the oldest uh, universities in the world, and it was also founded by a woman. So uh, I'm not sure if that's a property of the culture that we come from, but usually mm -hmm. there is no distinction or discrimination between uh, the kids when it comes to knowledge and, uh, and mm -hmm. sciences. Um, so we just grew up like that. If we are interested in this, 
usually we get the support of our parents and our teachers. And we also saw a lot of representation, especially that Tunisia, let's say, celebrates successful women in their field. So you would see the first doctor uh, who is Tunisian in, in the Arab world, who is Tunisian also like her, she's printed, let's say, on the on the note. And uh, there's a lot of celebration of women in Tunisia. And um, that definitely contributed to to what we, mm. uh, to the statistic that, uh, that I shared in the beginning. Um, but yes, hopefully I will see a lot of experiences replicated around, around the world because it's very, very important. Sometimes it feels mm. very lonely if you get into a room and you are just the only one who is a woman there. I would say there is not an aggression, but it's just a feeling that you get. You feel like you mm. are new or that you do not belong there or it's just you and it's just intimidating, right? And um, yes, I hope. I hope that uh, within the next years, we will see that declining further and further. Quantum computing is still R&D, mm. but uh, it's important for people who are not from science, you know, because we have people like uh, financial lawyers uh, and other marketing people. So how can we tell them that in what ways can quantum computing actually contribute to the benefit of the society? Because that's that's something if someone is listening to this, they would also be interested. Okay, cool. Sahar is doing research, but how does it in the long run help the society? Okay, so we can think of quantum computing as uh, a technology that we are developing. And similarly, we have developed a lot of disruptive technologies throughout history, right? So if we are developing a good technology and we are solving the right problems, then we are directly contributing to the development of our societies. So quantum computing is expected to be very useful in uh, fields such as pharmaceuticals and material sciences. And why is this? It's because fundamentally speaking, Quantum computers work with the same properties as quantum mechanical systems and the most fundamental systems in nature. So if we can model and simulate such uh, systems using quantum computers, then we will have a much better understanding of their dynamics and eventually we'll be able to engineer and design new materials and new medications. So that's why quantum computers, for example, is very much, let's say, in favor of of, uh, developing and advancing these fields. There are also other problems which demand a high uh, capacity of processing and, and for example, problems of optimization uh, and problems of processing a large amount of data. This is all demanding for a large capacity uh, for for memory and for uh, uh, data processing. And quantum computers are expected to be very useful in these areas too. So in the end, as we are advancing in this technology, we will be also discovering new new applications fields, and we will also mm-hmm. be uh, knowing more about the fundamental the fundamentals of our world. So we will also probably would be also answering the most fundamental questions in physics, in chemistry, in math. So let's say with a large capacity of information processing that quantum computers are giving us, we will be able to solve, let's say, the most challenging and pressing uh, problems that we have today, or at least we're expecting them uh, to, to, to do so. But also on the way, we will be discovering new things. No one has expected mm-hmm. uh, the boost of internet when it just started in the 90s, but look where we are today. 
right? So we can think of the same thing happening with quantum computing. And I would say the development of quantum computing will take the same path as AI, for example. It took a lot of years to reach the stage that we are at today, but look at the applications and look how mm. how many amazing things we could do uh, with, with AI. I am expecting and I am very optimistic that quantum computing will have the same impact. Cool, 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 cool. Now you also touched a little bit about the future. So where do you see the field of quantum computing heading in the next decade? I know in terms when you talk about research, decade is not that long of a time. Mm. Uh, but what? where do you see that hub going in the next decade? So we have a very interesting stage of quantum computing because the idea of quantum computer is not new. It started in the 80s, right? And it was just a simple idea. But since the 90s, there have been a lot of focus on this technology. There have been the first proposals of qubits and uh, the first algorithms, of course. Uh, for example, the famous uh, factorization uh, algorithm by Shor. And beginning of, of the 2000s also, we've, we saw the very, very first prototypes. And especially starting from 2018, let's say, we have seen a lot of progress in the field. We are seeing the first, let's say, real quantum computers. Now we are at, at, at 1,000 qubit as proposed by IBM recently. And we have also seen a lot of uh, algorithms coming up, which are promising and probably also won't have the capacity and the reliable machines mm. we will be able to use and to run those algorithms. So we are reaching milestones and we are advancing in the field. Okay, so probably in the next decade, as estimated, and for the very optimistic people, we will have a commercial use of quantum computing. But as a researcher, I know that there is a lot of pressing challenges. A lot of them are really engineering challenges that we cannot see, um, let's say, uh, the solution coming up uh, uh, in the recent years, in the upcoming uh, years. And uh, that's, that's okay. I mean, research is about that challenge. It's about solving those problems and it's about answering the big questions. And it may take some time, but uh, we will get there, right? We are, let's say, on the path to solve the, these issues and we are uh, reaching milestone, milestones. And uh, even though we are aware that um, finally having the system that is reliable and large enough to, to, to solve the applications and the real problems of the world, which may take much longer than a decade. But we are, we are up to the challenge, right? We are very excited about that. And especially we, we want to emphasize that as we are progressing in quantum computing, we are also progressing in quantum mechanics. We are also progressing in math and in physics and engineering. So probably, when we are building the quantum computer, we will also use this knowledge to do other applications, to develop other, uh, let's say, um, devices and to solve other problems. So it's a big machine that we are trying to build. But on the way, I am sure that a lot of applications will come out of this research. So we will see how much time this will take us, but eventually we'll get there. I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's very interesting. Uh, the whole research, I mean, uh, research is always fun, especially when you have research with hardware, you know, mm. like uh, you have to build something and then you see it work. I remember building a seven bit computer, not not anything fancy, like uh, using these, you know, like we made like a bus system mm. and using basic logic gates, you know, it was super, super complex. And it was like a whole board of ICs and so on. But 
the only thing it could do is add four-bit digits and that's it. But it was like a really complex circuit for us, you know. Yes. But it was fun. It, it was, was fun. fun. And yeah. I mean, that's already something super common. Mm. But when I was building that and whenever we had a small problem, figuring where the problem was, you know, yes. took us like hours. You know, we had to check every IC that which IC got burned or which, which where is the problem, you know. <laughs> so, uh there are a lot of problems that come with research as mm. well and challenges, like, yeah, like you mentioned. But this also scares some students, you know, sometimes mm. that students are like confused, like, hey, should we do like a PhD or should we like uh, go into the industry? So what advice would you give someone who's who's aspiring or confused between, let's say, academia <clears throat> and industry? You know, what are your thoughts about that? Because you have worked in both sides of the, of the, of the something. Mm. <laughs> okay. So academia versus industry. I think it's the, the question of the, of the century, right? Because we need researchers to continue the advancement uh, of, of sciences and knowledge. And usually, mm -hmm. usually, and even historically speaking, all the big, let's say, milestones and the big technology, they all started from labs. So that's also why I personally chose to do a PhD in academia, because I could have had the chance to do it also in the industry or to not have a PhD at all. I could just have the knowledge uh, that I have through, let's say, the, the, the accessible educational resources and also my master's. And that's it. I could start a career in quantum computing somehow. But there is a special, let's say, uh, career start if you are like working closely with brilliant minds and the people who are really driving the advancement of such technologies, quantum computing, AI, or any other uh, field that is emerging right now. And everything starts from academia at some point. So I would say that industry is very interesting in the sense that it is impactful. Eventually, products will need to go from labs to societies through industries. Right. But mm. industries, there is a lot of, let's say, a lot of elements that uh, that control the dynamics of business and, 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 uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, businesses and uh, industry that we do not find in academia. Academia, usually the people are very concentrated on advancing and creating something new, even though, of course, it has its, its dark side. I'm not saying that everything is brilliant and everything is positive, but. If we, if we look at the essence of academia, it has always been advancing knowledge and, um, and adding to the, to, the, to the sciences and, and uh, let's say, the overall knowledge of humanity. And I would say that's a very interesting point, and that's definitely, let's say, something that I can relate to personally, personally speaking. But professionally speaking, also, it gets you to learn from the best, and it gets you to be in close, let's say, mentorship relation with the brilliant minds of the field that you'd like to work at. Industry also is very interesting, okay? So it has also its own dynamics. It had also its um, its uh, exciting part, which is developing uh, technology and promoting it and getting it to be, uh, let's say, presented into the market and people using it. And therefore, that's how you make a use out of a technology. But I think that comes in a later stage, right? So I would say it's a personal choice whether you want to be on the, let's say, creativity and uh, generating new knowledge side or you want to be on the side of being impactful and creating the products that people would find useful and eventually also that's how you transfer the knowledge from just pure theoretical 
uh, knowledge and papers and uh, and conferences to actual uh, to actual uh, products that you find on the market. So both are very important. There is no way I would say that one is better than the other, but I would say that one is let's say um, specific to each purpose or let's say to each path that you would like to take. It's a very personal decision. I made my own, which is to start from academia and later on go to, to industry, because that's also uh, one of the objectives that I would like to, to do uh, in my career at some point. I cannot decide what point that is, but uh, mm. definitely I would like to be on both sides of quantum computing. First, I want to have the knowledge that would um, give me the tools to understand the sciences, but also have my own contributions to the development of the technology. And also, I would like to see all this knowledge transferred to society. And that's, of course, through industry. Interesting, interesting. Now, we are, because we are coming towards an end, I, I, I'm thinking because we talked a lot about quantum, quantum computing, science, and you're very passionate. I can see the passion, you know, <laughs> I can see that your decision was, was, you know, right, that you decided to go in research. It took me a lot of time not... to take the decision, <laughs> but uh, I, I am definitely imagine. happy with it. Yes. I mean, the decision making is never easy, mm. but uh, I, I can see the passion, you know, when you're answering the questions, when you're explaining to us, uh, like how and why and what. So that kind of passion is something we also say in industry mm. you need to be passionate about something if you want to be a, become a product manager become one but you need to be passionate about the, the field True. because if you're not passionate you will wake up in the morning and you will be like oh shit i need to do that you yeah. should be more like oh yes i'm going to Another do this day. Day, whatever it is yes. you know it's 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 you're happy um so now let's completely off topic jump off topic completely off topic and, okay off topic completely like uh, because uh, this is all what uh, we are we are about so aside from your professional interest in uh, quantum and so on what are your hobbies or passion for the very little time that i still have in my day <laughs> i either do sports in order to have some mental space where i can just uh, yeah just be off let's say the 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 uh, responsibilities and the work throughout the day but also very very important for the creative side uh, or I just go out and explore Barcelona, which is a very, very beautiful city. And there's a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot to see, a lot of activities, a lot of things to do, a lot of people to meet. So whenever I have time, I try to socialize in Barcelona. So it's either working out in the gym or just go to a museum or explore Barcelona. For now, mm -hmm. yes, those are my passions and hobbies besides quantum computing. <laughs> Cool. Is your routine like one of those uh, pictures you see on Instagram? I sleep at two o'clock in the night and I wake up at 2.30 and that's it. And then I start hustling. No, I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could do that. But if I don't get my seven hours of sleep, I do not function at all. So yes, my, my schedule is pretty, is pretty strict in that sense, is that I prioritize sleep, but I also pro prioritize resting and having uh, a mental space that is outside of work throughout the day. So this has to be a daily practice, uh, not once in a week or once in a month, but I also work a lot of hours. So the day is very, very limited. No, but that's important. Rest is important. Of like, course, yes. Uh, I mean, everyone is different. Mm. No matter when I sleep, I, I tend to wake up super early. Mm -hmm. It's just I like my body accepts that, hey, wake up early, sleep early, wake up early, you know. But I have friends who 
don't like to sleep early they sleep like super late like mm. two or three but they need their eight hour sleep you know so whatever you're okay with that's that's completely uh fine of course i mean i was exp- it's just a meme that's going around right like i sleep at two and then i wake up at 2 30 to hustle again <laughs> and then uh, so I was, I was to be honest i've never met person i personally never met a person who who has a schedule like that usually the people that i know who also work a lot and they have a lot to do just with their jobs and everything on the side but uh, i i don't know whether those uh, schedules are, are realistic but <laughs> i don't know it's to each their own of course so i know someone who's ultra successful mm. but uh, he sleeps at 10 mm. and he wakes up at 5 in the morning but he has something very interesting by mm-hmm. he says much in the the morning when i wake up in the morning at 5 i am able to you know focus on a lot of things there is no meetings there is no one bugging me so i have from 5 till 8 complete time for myself I agree with and that. And I do a lot of things, reading, you know, going out, running and so on. I, I do something similar, which is some amazing, you know, I, I feel really good with that. Mm. Um, and then he taught me something which is super rare. He started taking naps in the daytime. I agree with and that too. To be honest, I started doing that and I feel amazing. Yes. It's so cool. You sleep like one hour in the day and it works really nice for me as well and then in the evening you're already tired like eight nine and then you're ready to sleep by 10 exactly you know yeah so it's 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 something i feel for myself it's it's working really good but we come to an end and uh, this has been an incredibly insightful discussion sahar right that's uh because uh, I'm, i'm trying to get the names as accurate as possible you know um so Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experiences with us. Uh, Would you like to say something as a closing statement for our listeners? A closing statement. I would say that uh, explore, uh, as as we have talked about in this this, uh, podcast, and thank you again for the invitation, is I took the time to explore business, academia, organization of events, working multiple jobs at the same time. And it was all just contributing to building me as a person, professionally, personally, and also building my network. So everything I would say that you do in the exploration phase is very important and it ends up building who you are. And I would say also this exploration phase eventually led me to know about quantum computing. And it was my curiosity that got me to participate in a hackathon in another country about the field that I had never heard of. And here I am today doing a PhD in that field because I just was curious and I found something that I'm really passionate about and I'm very happy to be pursuing a career in it uh, today. So uh, yes, I would say my my advice is to explore and take the time and uh, take also the, the unconventional ways. When I started quantum computing, I knew personally no one who knows about that field or, or worked in it. But uh, yes, those unconventional paths eventually take you also to very interesting places and uh, it, everything contributes to having a very, uh, let's say, dynamic life uh, that I hope everyone uh, will get to experience. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to the executives. If you found this episode valuable, don't forget to subscribe and share it with your network. Until next time, this is Majid signing off.